Now that we've got the problematic portion of our show out of the way. <laughs> now we can. Now we can. Now we can talk about the the Budweiser cold hard facts. That's right. Life. We'll be public facing and not get in trouble. Hey, I was, I was like thinking about the other day, like, um, remember how when we were growing up in school, they would always say like, uh, the vowels, the vowels are A, E, I, O, U, and sometimes Y. Remember they would say that? I've, have, can you find an example of when Y was a vowel? See, dude, this is exactly what my point is. Like, okay, correct me if I'm wrong. But, like, they never told you what the sometimes why cases were. They're, it's like they would always treat it like, no, that's really advanced stuff. Like, we can't get it into we can't get nah, into this it. Is, this is outside <laughs> the scope of second grade. Sorry. <laughs> like, they treated it like you wouldn't understand it. But then they never circled back to it. So it's like, I feel like that's been an open tab for me for, like, 30-something years. You know? I want to go back to... Uh Mahala Craft, and I want to say, you know what I think, Mahala? I think you don't know when wise a vowel. I don't think they ever knew. They were I don't think you know yourself, do you? Like, no, no, I know. I know she'd be like, no, I know. I just don't want to say right now. <laughs> it's like they revert back to kid tactics when you challenge them on when wise a vowel. Uh huh. No, I know. Yeah. That's actually. What if it's like a um, fountain of youth thing? Like, uh, actually, son, when you find out the application in which wise a vowel, yeah, then you'll know the meaning of life and then that's when you can for existence and all. When that. you can die, like you find it out and you immediately start withering away. Yeah. Like you've served <laughs> your purpose on earth. It's like, it's I, like don't. Don't go, don't go wondering one wise vowel because that's when things. Yeah, I, what if there was like a twenty-one Jump Street thing and like you went undercover back to school, but it was just to find out what sometimes why cases, what the sometimes why cases were. Yeah, <laughs> like you have to do school all over again. Like when did Listen, they teach? You? Bro, I'm after the hidden knowledge. <laughs> and then on your deathbed, somebody's just like ayahuasca you know like, what do you mean ayahuasca and then they're like no that's one wise avowal like in the word ayahuasca actually that's honestly, what you've been looking for your whole life i think in that case it actually is a consonant in ayahuasca i mean i, I know what i'm just saying oh oh you know are you yeah, sure I, I know i was just yeah I was yeah just i know saying. oh i know oh i know now there's a fraternity of us guys that know one wise avowal we just don't tell anybody. It's you know. secret knowledge. It's like the sacred mathematics of the nations of gods and earths, you know. Uh huh. I just I was waiting for them to come back around to that every year. Like going to the next grade every summer, I was like, "Is this the year we get to find out when sometimes why?" Yeah, you're getting your elementary school diploma, getting ready to go to middle school. Some things are changing. Like your life's crazy, and you just go to your teacher like, so. Before I go, I gotta know. I gotta know when, sometimes, why. She's yeah, a chance that you'll figure it out when you need to know, and that'll just shoot you off. Oh uh, yeah, no. She like looks around. She's like, Whoa. she shushes you. Like the the, all of a sudden, like all the lights go out and like sirens start going off, and like 
spotlights come on and like barbed wire goes up around all the things. She's like, you run, run, you got to get out of here. Save yourself. (laughs) Save yourself. She thrusts a scroll into your chest and like before she can get out, like dogs just descend upon her and start tearing her to shreds. Yeah, she just gets mangled some kind of jigsaw from saw trap. (laughs) And you're sitting there with a diploma and like running from dogs. Uh, and they just uh, bite the seat of your pants out like on the cartoons. Like the dogs always just bite the seat of your pants out, but they mm-hmm. don't really get you. That's right. They just bite the seat of your pants out, and then you don't have to take your pants off to poop anymore. And then you catch your breath, and then you start to unscroll it, and you realize it just all falls to dust because the dogs got it. Because the dogs got it. Ah, oh, fuck. Well, on that scroll is like where all the cases of sometimes why are. You know, yeah. in the band, yes, is why a consonant or a vowel in the case of the band, yes, not the word, but the band. Uh, hmm. Hmm. You know, I've not stopped to interrogate that question. What what the what differentiates a consonant from a vowel? <laughs> I've not actually thought about the craft in a long time. <laughs> Let's go back to fundamentals. Let's <laughs> go back to the building blocks of language. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Oh, man. Speaking of... Oh, here's one. In the word y'all is why about... Oh, yeah. <laughs> Damn. The most, also the most dangerous word in the world right now. Honestly, it is it is like handling C four like nitroglycerin explosive. In the wrong hands, you in might as well be giving it to damn Murdoch from MacGyver. You know, like what what are we gonna do if ISIS gets a hold on y'all? Like, could you imagine them like taking responsibility for terrorist acts? Like, listen, y'all, we dropped the bomb on y'all. Listen, <laughs> we dropped the bomb. We we put the dog on y'all. <laughs> <laughs> They're like, no, they finally figured out a way to not only terrorize us physically, but emotionally and mentally, intellectually. No, yeah, dude. If I, ISIS, ISIS would be way better off beheading me than to just bombard me with y'all. <laughs> like, given the choice between the two, I'll take the, I'll take the beheading. <laughs> I'll let them remove my head from my body rather than sit there and hit me with a bunch of y'all talk. Just like how in to the 2000s after 9/11, Bush was like, "They hate us for our freedoms," and they and they and Osama bin Laden shoots back. He's like, "Y'all got it twisted. Hey, y'all got y'all it got twisted. It. Listen, y'all need to take several seats. Y'all need to on take this several on terror stuff. <laughs> you know, like how it said that uh, you know after World War II, sort of the United States adopted this sort of you know, posture of the Nazis and like the, you know, the uh, sort of the enemy, mm-hmm. quote unquote. Well, not, I mean, they were the enemy. I mean, us being the heroes is the sort of quote unquote part. Right. Uh, but we sort of adopted their, you know, sort of morphed into the baddies. Right. Not that we weren't already the baddies. I don't know what I'm saying. Basically, what I'm saying is we adopted a lot of the same qualities of the Nazis. Like y'all, they used y'all? Is that what you're well, going with? Is that where you're going what, with this? Here's where I'm trying to get with this, and <laughs> and I keep stepping on rakes. 
is ISIS, all those, all of uh, America's foes uh, across the world adopt our traits. And that is like they start watching college football. Uh-huh. They only eat uh, Duke's mayonnaise now. Uh, <laughs> they drink whiskey and only go to see acts that play at Red Rocks. Mm-hmm. They're, they ISIS becomes a bunch of y'all dads. That would be so tight. Yeah. That'd like you just good. you just uh, you know something bad happens in the world and they send out a video to take credit for it and they're just wearing like uh, Wrangler jeans and <laughs> pearl snap button downs and a dirty cap that says uh, make cornbread not war <laughs> and uh, some guy named uh, <clears throat> you know. Uh, Alawiki or something. What's that guy's <laughs> name that Obama killed? All and we're all lucky. All lucky, yeah. yeah. So anyway, somebody just gets on there and says, "Y'all lucky." And and we're y'all lucky. And we're y'all lucky. <laughs> y'all lucky. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> yep, there we go. I like when we got our episode title out of the way. And we're y'all lucky. And we're y'all lucky pops up and says. I just want to let y'all know, uh, kill Anwar, y'all lucky. <laughs> and then he pops his, no, y'all didn't. <laughs> y'all are going to try have to try harder than that. And then you just see <laughs> in the back, it's just like a bunch of guys wearing like Mississippi State jerseys just shooting like <laughs> rifles into the air. Uh-huh. <laughs> I, I saw a shirt the other day. Oh, man, I wanted to take a picture of it so bad. I saw a guy wearing a T-shirt the other day that said, Y'all need to use the force. <laughs> mm-mm, mm-mm. I did. Mm-mm. I did, dude. It's like... No, you did <laughs> <laughs> no, no, you didn't. <laughs> this is, like this is, this two... is going to be my undoing if you, say, if you answer in the apartment. <laughs> You're going to see a man... <laughs> Come unglued in real time. I wish I was kidding, my friend, but I I stopped dead in my tracks. I almost sh- I almost shook him. I almost like grabbed him by the shoulders and shook him. Like, get a hold of yourself, man. Have some self-respect. <laughs> a grown man wearing a shirt. Y'all need to use the force. Oh man, there was a tweet the other day. Let me pull it up real quick. This is fucking. <laughs> there's nothing I hate worse than a gratuitous y'all just because it's like like people like to say it now for some reason or mm-hmm. yeah but uh <laughs> there's this guy and uh <laughs> he said Noam Blum said the way Romney was treated 100% set the stage for Republicans to want someone like Trump and y'all better come to terms with it. <laughs> uh, according be- to his bio, this is a, a commentator from Washington District of Columbia. I mean, this is and the this is the ontological question. Like, am I y'all? When people say y'all, am I am I y'all? Because this is the thing. Like, this really does. This really is what separates the wheat from the chaff. If we're talking about linguistic terrorism, like you can just drop an umbrella net over an entire group of people and say, y'all. And then 
it fucks with me because then I'm like, oh man, am I y'all? Do I need to am use I, the force? Am I yet? Do I? <laughs> y'all need to use the force, or do I? I don't like who who makes that shirt. I just got to know the the sort of backstory of the shirt. Well, it's obviously a play on y'all need Jesus, but it's like y'all need to use the force. It's like um, it's like epic atheist bacon spaghetti monster flying spaghetti monster stuff. Oh yeah, it's you like know? epic. Yeah, y'all need the force. Yeah, good one. I'm just going right in. Somebody saw that shirt and. Uh, y'all need to use the force. Mm-hmm. You see it? <sighs> it's pretty good. <sighs> I like it. I think it's good. <sighs> I think generally that's good stuff. Generally? <sighs> <laughs> oh, man, that's good. I love that. That's good stuff. Generally, that's good stuff. I'm going to say something. It's going to be controversial. And a lot of people are going to come from my head top on this. And you know what? I don't care because I'm tired of living in the shadows. Speak your truth, brother. If you are from the state of Kentucky, you are a you-all, not a y'all. Uh-huh. That's an, un- that's an inconvenient truth people want to cling on to. Because uh-huh. they want to believe. They want to sort of erase any distance Kentucky has from the South writ large. Uh-huh. Because they want to be in that club for some reason. Because we're the only deranged state that said, you know what? I think we should adopt the characteristics and identities of the losers of the war between the states. <laughs> that we, really is. K- Kentucky staked out the most insane position <laughs> post-Civil War. <laughs> Basically, it's on It is true. It's like... Yeah, it's like I'm. They stayed neutral and then went with the losing the side. Loser. <laughs> After the war, they're like, nah, we actually like the sort of character and aesthetics of the losers in this." So, like, uh, yeah, the most cowardly position possible. Like, truly, literally, the most cowardly position possible. Yeah, really. <laughs> so. I'm just going to say this. When I start, I'm, I, and here, I've, I've, I'm starting doing this with a little self-crit because I have done a lot of y'all. I uh-huh. have. But if I'm flowing from within, if I'm like Lou Rawls, I'm flowing from within and living my truth. Uh-huh. I'm a you-all. I'm y'all. I am a you-all. And uh, chances are, y'all are too. <laughs> yeah, I'm. see, I'm y'all, bro. God, you're, my you're still staying with y'all? That's my people, yeah, I'm staying with Are you riding it out? I'm riding it out. <laughs> <laughs> I put some spicy chili crisp on my hummus sandwich for lunch and didn't wash my hands, and I'm just sitting here rubbed it in my eyes. Uh-huh. Touched my cock with it. I'm in bad shape over here. Oh, man. I'm, I'm, in, I'm inflamed. Oh, man. <laughs> Do you think that, uh, do they use y'all in Colorado? Was, Let's see. Let's just go to the tape. Um, was Lauren Boebert uh, being, was she y'all in it up? Let's see. Who's it? You all versus y'all. I was laughing about the Lauren Boebert thing. It's already out of the news, obviously. But, like, uh, obviously, like, every teenage boy knows the old, the classic trick. Where you get a tub of popcorn, right? And you cut a hole in the bottom. And you put your wiener in there. And then you put the popcorn on your wiener inside yeah, like, the tub. 
like the opening uh, skit on the Little Kim Hardcore album. Yeah. He's like, I need a large popcorn with extra butter and a lot of napkins. Uh-huh. Then you just hear her fucking jerking him off. <laughs> yeah, dude. But what if... What, in th- what? Presumably in a, in a theater. <laughs> no, you just go, like, in your living room, like, watching TV, just in the privacy of your home. Like, that's the thing you have to have, like, hot butter <laughs> and popcorn kernels. I was and that's what... Yeah, that would be such a good date. Like, hey, come over to my house. I'm got. I'm gonna make some popcorn. Mm-hmm. And here's what I want. <laughs> <laughs> that dude was like really going to town on her boobs, though. He was like totally rubbing her boobs, like, like rubbing her boobs. Like, the really insane hard. part about that is that like the distance between the people in front of them and behind them was like on one of those like budget airline flights where your <laughs> knees are in your chest the whole time. I know. So it's like, like f- four inches. or five people around them were also getting hard. Yeah. Probably. <laughs> like, I was thinking, like, though, that like, she's got pretty big boobs, right? Like, why couldn't you take two popcorn tubs and then cut holes in the bottom of those and then put them on your <laughs> boobs? And then your date can reach over and fill your titties inside the popcorn. <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> <laughs> most insane <laughs> measure to take in the world. <laughs> like, why didn't they think of that? I don't understand. I wonder who the first degenerate to do the popcorn <laughs> trick was. <laughs> well, what? Can you imagine walking out of there a fucking, a fucking movie butter all over your crotch <laughs> cause you, just because you were trying to be get a handy? And well, what if, what if they were actually created for that purpose specifically and then one day some guy had just got a handy in a movie and he was like well this actually this would work great as a popcorn container too though you know what i mean like they started oh, okay out. yeah you're, yeah it started out as like a a way to shield your your public uh fetish yeah, yeah. and then he's like you know what hey be honest with you, this holds about 32 ounces of uh, standard movie butter popcorn. I love just, like, using it to do every single, like, nasty, like, degenerate thing in a movie theater. You, like, put it on your date's lap and you start trying to eat her out. Like, you put your head in <laughs> the popcorn tub. <laughs> and you just can't reach it. <laughs> like, the, just every single thing... <laughs> and yeah, like it's hidden. Providing cover, <laughs> like you're just sitting there having sex in the row. It's <laughs> and, but since you got the the, the popcorn tub over it, you're like, nah, nobody can. Nobody see can it. see. No one knows what it's we're like doing. It's like an invisibility cloak. <laughs> <laughs> no one knows what we're doing right now. <laughs> <laughs> oh. I'm just the other thing is like. I've never wanted like a hand job so bad that I couldn't wait two hours for one. <laughs> I, I'm serious. Like I, I'm serious about my movies, man. Yeah, I'm. 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 I'm a film buff. Yeah, I'm not multitasking. I can't. Yeah. I can't so do like, that. yeah. So my date's like trying to put a popcorn to like, hey, let me jerk you off. <laughs> I was like, no thanks, lady. No thanks. This is cinema. It's cinema time. 
Yeah. <laughs> if you want to jerk somebody off, go ask one of these guys. Right now, I'm watching uh, <laughs> uh, Killers of the Flower Moon. I'm Thank watching you. the Bay- Baywatch reboot. <laughs> yeah, You're just hard as fuck watching the Baywatch reboot. <laughs> she sees you and she's like, oh, yeah. You're like, no. This is part of the movie experience. This is how I experience it. Yeah, I'm just letting all these feelings wash over me while Dwayne Johnson <laughs> saves the <laughs> saves the Baywatch. Uh-huh. Saves the Bay. Uh-huh. He's watching the Bay. I wonder if there is a guy that got jerked off in a, a popcorn tub while uh, Black Adam was playing. <laughs> Remember the Rock's uh, foray into... Uh, the comic book unit, the DC uh, uh-huh. cinematic universe. Right. I bet he'd be he would be mad about that if he learned about it. We need to keep advanced stats like that. For, you know, like uh, to be honest with you, uh, ticket sales only tell one story. Mm-hmm. You're right. We do need to. You're exactly right. Like, if you're getting know- jerked off in your movie a lot, even if the the box office is good. That's probably a bigger indictment on how much your movie sucks than the box office. I've spent money on some bad movies, you know? 100%. Like, in our capitalist economy, bro, like, there are other metrics for determining success. It doesn't have to just be the box office number. Yeah. You know? Yeah. For example, I got my first-hand job at the movie Bats, and I also fingered my first girl at the movie Bats. (laughs) What I can tell you about bats is very little. <laughs> and see, that tells the tale. Even though it may have done okay at the box office. For me, it was two thumbs. Well, I don't know. <laughs> two thumbs working back and forth. Wait, Lou How Diamond bats do at the box office? Can we get a number crunch on that? We can, yes. The budget was five. It did It did $10.2 mil, $10. million off of a budget of 5.25. So I seem to remember, was Jeff Goldblum in that, or did I dream that? It doubled its money. Jeff Goldblum was apparently not in it. It's Lou Diamond Phillips. Lou Diamond Phillips, yeah. That's bats. right. Were they trying to do, like, a Hitchcock birds thing, but it's bats? I think so. Yeah, I think that's what it, I like. I said I don't know. A, a hostile swarm of genetically mutated bats terrorize a local Texas town, and it is up to zoologist Sheila Casper, who teams up with town sheriff Emmett Kinsey, Kimsey, to exterminate the creatures before they take more lives. Yeah, um, I was a, a guest at a friend of the show, uh, Steve Slagkowski's in-laws' house, the other night, and invariably the dinner table conversation turned to bats and rabies as it often does with, with uh-huh. us yeah and uh i i wanted to tell that, that i wanted to break that out but one i didn't think it was appropriate dinner table conversation yeah you know, especially on the first time meeting some people oh yeah uh, but uh yeah uh my my history with bats cuts <laughs> cuts a little further. So many different just, ways. So many different ways. I don't remember the first movie that I don't think I've ever even gotten. I remember one of the first times I went on a date with somebody. Well, that's not true. I do remember seeing the movie Hitch in movie theaters with a date. Uh, 
but that was like 2005 like i was that was a that was a long time ago that was, that, was a, that was a movie that uh energized a whole generation of wayward boys to try to date women that were way out of their league well it was like a pickup artist thing the the premise was like what if a pickup artist finds love yeah what if a pua <laughs> finds true love what if a pickup that. artist finds true love right yeah what if he means a baddie latina who teaches him how to soften his heart yeah how teaches him how to open his heart to <laughs> be receptive to love was it ava mendez was that who was yeah yeah wow teaches him how to open his heart to love and close his heart to to, to poonstein <laughs> and in the meantime he's gonna get his zany buddy kevin james laid oh uh, yeah you know, you're by somebody completely out of his league. Uh huh. Yep. Man, what do we got going on in the world today? Um, the United Auto Workers is overplaying its hand, risking our economy and the election. No, the guy who wrote that was the counselor to the Treasury Secretary in the Obama administration. <laughs> Oh my god. Oh man. Uh it's all over the opinion pages of the Washington Post and the New York Times. It's like these are audacious. These are audacious demands. Someone <laughs> tell these pa- these goddamn strikers to to cut it out. To freaking <laughs> cut it out. Tell these uh, tell these strikers to to they need to Take several seats real quick. Mm-hmm. You got auto workers overplaying their hand. Uh, Paul Krugman says inflation is down. Disinflation denial is soaring. He's kind of taking the Will Stancil stance on that. Uh-huh. He's taking the Will Stancil. He's taking the Will Stancil. <laughs> He's taking Will Stancil. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, what else do we got? I'd say Mr. Krugman's never bought oatmeal in bulk, but <laughs> I guess keep keep doing what you're doing, PK. What What are we supposed to say about this? Like, I really feel like this is really getting out of hand. Uh. Is it is it like what we were talking about earlier before we recorded? Like every time you've got a dim Democrat in the White House, a Democratic administration, like a certain segment of the liberal left peels off and think, and they have to take a defensive position, and so they they then start like casting reality. Okay, like okay, I'll agree, inflation is going down a little bit. Uh, Damn, you've seen the you've you've felt the effects in your pocketbook. I've felt the effects in my pocketbook. Yeah, you're saving money because of Biden's uh, attempts to bring it down. Yeah. Oh yeah. Okay. Oh yeah. Um, I mean, it's not, it's not really gone down that much. It has gone down a little bit, but like, but they've still got interest rates high as fuck. Yeah, you can't buy shit right now. Yeah, you can't get loan. You can't get cheap loans, which like, hey man, I'm not a startup 
operation. And uh, I'm also not a homeowner, so <laughs> those things don't really matter to me. I'm but. basically a vagabond, but... <laughs> <laughs> I'm a landless artisan. I have no land. I'm not proletariat, necessarily. I've been, I've been like, increasingly obsessed with, like, economic classifications. And, like, with the whole <laughs> idea of class in general... Yeah, I'm a I'm a landless artisan with lump and pro rising. <laughs> That's my chart. <laughs> uh, it's a hard thing to look in the eyes. You're near forty. <laughs> it is, man. It really is. Nah, whatever. Oh man. Yeah, I mean, uh, I've known my fate for years. I'm, I, I know exactly. You just check in with this old boy in about twenty years. I'll be painting houses, and I'll have grown a ponytail after I've <laughs> lost what's on top, and I'll just be listening to the Bellamy Brothers all day, and uh huh, uh, you know, roofing and smoking a little dope changed my attitude. That's right. <laughs> lumping rising. Honestly, we we are all lumping rising. <laughs> We're all being lumpenized. Yeah. I I I've been I have been really digging in to the finer details of the feudal class structure of late medieval Norman France. Northern oh, really? France in England. That's big news. Yeah. Big news for me. What are you finding in <laughs> in this in this survey? Okay, so the the whole idea of let me just say this: the whole concept of class seems straightforward, right? It's like we got like bourgeois, proletariat, lumpen, petty bourge, whatever. Yeah. But like the how you actually classify those things, Marx never settled it. He like starts talking about it in Capital Volume Three, and then never just just never gets around to it. It's kind of like sometimes why he's like A E I O U sometimes why, but then never circles back. So his sometimes why was like these classifications. Yeah, but he just kind of just lets you take that adventure for yourself. For yourself, it's just take your own adventure. And how many it, volumes of Capital are there? Three. There's three. He didn't finish yeah. it either. So it's kind of like uh, Chinese Democracy by Guns N' Roses. Yeah, it's very similar to that. It's, I mean, he was like, nah, like, this is coming out. And then he just <laughs> died before it did, actually did. Uh-huh. Or like, what was that Dr. Dre album? Was it like Rehab? Did he ever do oh, that Oh, uh, Detox. And Detox, Detox still didn't come out. <laughs> yeah, Detox never did, came out. Did Detox ever come out? <laughs> I don't think it did. I don't think Detox ever came out. It's it, oh he yeah he released that one uh, what was it he released that one that was like uh, uh, it was called something like California or Compton yeah Compton came out and he was like new album coming out and everybody thought it was gonna be Detox and it was just like called Compton the album and it was okay but it kind of came and went fairly quietly was that remember when everyone was doing that oh no that's not it. Compton, yeah. That's funny. I was thinking about that album on my walk yesterday. Or this uh-huh. morning, actually. And we were talking about hip-hop producers of the golden age. 
Mm-hmm. <laughs> and just, you know, some light boys chat banter for... <laughs> Wait, this album came out in 2015. Prior to its release, there was heavy anticipation on whether Compton or Luke Bryan's Kill the Lights would debut. Luke Bryan, is that the guy that almost got in a fight? Or is that Zach Bryan? That's Zach Bryan. Oh, it's like Luke, Zach. Yeah, Zach, it's hard Luke? to keep him straight. <laughs> oh, dear. Zach is good. Luke is uh, mm-hmm. less than. Okay, let me just say that the... Uh, that... The class designation is a very important one for understanding early America. So this book that I was that I'm reading that I've been telling you about uh Wilma Dunaway The First American Frontier It's right here. Okay. Well, my Yeah. This is um, you were telling me she's sort of been spurned by the app study set in, to some degree. Yeah, they just completely ignore her and I don't understand why. It's like they it's like you <laughs> completely overlooked. Um but did she come out against y'all too in this seminal text? I believe she did. She did. Damn, that'll do it every time. She kind of actually does literally because, like, every few paragraphs, she's like, "The myth of the self-sufficient family farmer is completely made up. It's completely fiction. We it's made it up." Everything, everything uh, from every outfit from App Harvest to whatever the sort of uh, VC fundraising scheme du jour to save the beleaguered coal miner is predicated on is it turns out in itself a myth <laughs> it's all a myth yeah we made it up folks folks um, uh, turns out we tortured some folks folks <laughs> turns out we we didn't grow turnips here <laughs> folks turns out Tur- turns out uh, Did you see that they are having? You can, you can get ramps and pawpaws and many other places. This week they're like having to sell off all their assets. They're, yeah, the I judge, saw that. a judge ordered them to sell off their assets. We can get some, bro. <laughs> they were ajar. The door's ajar for app harvest. The door's ajar. Let's get some. Let's get some harvesters. It would be tight if we acquired that uh, facility in an auction for pennies on the dollar. I want a harvester. I want one of those big plowing machines. Like an international harvester? I don't know. Whatever the thing is. International harvester. (laughs) With the tractor and the thing that goes in front that's real wide. But, like, I want to put machine guns and rocket launchers on it. And then then I'm going to go to Ukraine. And then I'm going to be like, oh, I'm just a Ukrainian wheat farmer. And then be like, gotcha, bitch, and then shoot a bunch of rockets. I guess at the Russians. I mean, I'm not, I'm not trying to be controversial today. So Terrence is not picking a side in that conflict. He's just a chaos agent. I'm just an agent of chaos. <laughs> like, oh, who is this farmer? Who is this farmer who's got y'all painted on the side of his tractor, but he's, like, shooting and killing everybody? Yeah, you'll back get one of those. And you know how like uh, Chris Kyle was called the Devil of Ramadi or whatever. Yeah, and they can call you the. Um, uh, well, I don't know what's another word. <laughs> the Yeoman of Death or something. The Thorn. Yeah, the yo- 
<laughs> the omen of death. Yeah. Yeah. He comes to us. <laughs> he comes to us in the form of a of a simple peasant farmer. <laughs> that really is Anwar Yalaki. Yeah. That really is the omen of death. Uh Okay, her argument is that in early colonial America, before America was America, in the early col- colonies, the uh, she's a world systems theorist, okay? So sh- her, her argument is that in the 17th and 18th centuries, the world system was in a transition state. And we talked about this on the Origi episode. We actually mentioned Origi on the episode this weekend with Christina Heatherton on the Patreon. Go check that out, folks, if you haven't done so yet. Give us your money. Go check that out. For a little less than an an hour's wage in these United States, you can get that and and more. Yeah, unless it's being inflated, in which case (laughs) you're not actually experiencing inflation. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Anyways, so... The 16th and 17th centuries, this is a transition period where, like, the Dutch hegemony, the you know, the Dutch had global hegemon status over the world system, right? Kind of interesting to think about those bastards really kind of running, right? running trade. I know. You know? They had their global entrepots. Yeah, you think about a place that's underwater running things, it just don't make no damn sense. It's got a place called The Hague. It, that has a town with a definite article in it. The Hague. The whole town's called The Hague. It's like the Ohio State University. Yeah. In a way, you know? Yeah. Except for baddies. For baddies. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but during this time, the French and the English were jockeying for world hegemon positions over the world system. Who was? The French and the English. Uh, classic conflict. Cla- classic conflict. And so, uh, Southern Appalachia, which she defines as the northern part of it is West Virginia, going all the way down into Georgia and Alabama. So she, she defines all of that as Southern Appalachia. Yeah. Like, that becomes the theater upon which this global struggle plays out, actually. And so, it happens in several stages. The first is that the people who lived here during that time were indigenous. So mostly a Cherokee nation, but there's also the Creek. So the Scots Irish and the Choctaw. We're not the Scots Irish aren't here yet. Well, you said the indigenous peoples of Appalachia. <laughs> no, they will arrive later. The the British basically did like a divide and conquer thing. They chose the Cherokee. It's extraordinarily fucked up, man. It's insane. It's like very depressing to read about. They basically chose the Cherokee as their sort of prioritized indigenous nation to play off of, like, the Choctaw and the Creek and the Yazoo and everything. Um, Is this connected to, in some way to everybody claiming Cherokee ancestry? Well, it's actually, it's interesting. I'll get to that. Um, put, a, put a pin in that. So, like, the colonies at this time like the 13 colonies or whatever. The northern ones, the northeastern ones and the middle ones, so basically Maine all the way down to Virginia, were like semi-peripheral. So in world systems theory, you've got a core, 
a periphery and a semi-periphery. Semi-periphery kind of mediates between the core and the periphery. And these like dynamics occur all over the world, between nations, inside nations, uh, between regions, inside regions, etc. Um, so like the northern states all the way down to the middle colonies were semi-peripheral. The, the southern colonies were peripheral. And the Appalachian Mountains were like a, a peripheral fringe attached to this. And it, they had to be articulated into the world economy in some way. And so how that happened was that in Europe at this time, there was a shortage of fur, of leather-making fur. And so I don't know why. I have something I want to say about this. This is connected to my own childhood. Uh, In the mid-90s, anybody from Whitesburg will remember that that, uh, the the park where we played basketball down by the middle school was sort of a site of recreation. And one day the basketball courts were defaced with some interesting slurs. (laughs) What did they say? On one goal it was written... Cock handler. <laughs> but on the stop sign, going to right beside the basketball courts, somebody wrote fur trades. <laughs> and I've spent most of, much of my adult life trying to figure out where Y is a vowel, but also what that what that vandal was getting at with by writing just. It's almost like when they wrote, uh, what was it they wrote on the tree at the Lost Colony of Roanoke? Like Krakatoa or something like that? Something like that. Lemuria. That's where Whatever. we went. Peace out. We went to Atlantis. Yeah. yeah. So I'm trying to, they just wrote fur trades. And I just, <laughs> anyway, it made me think of that when you're talking about the fur shortage. I was like, oh, yeah, dude. well, that was on somebody's mind in the 90s when they defaced the basketball court. I mean, maybe they were ahead of their time. Maybe they read this book. It came out in the 90s. It was a little tight tangent. You mentioned the word vandal. So, like, vandal, obviously, we get the word vandal from the invading vandals, who briefly had a kingdom in North Africa in, like, the 5th century. Do you know where the ter- do you know where the Carthaginians, word- basically. Yeah, they basically occupied old the old Carthage area. Okay. Uh... Do you know where we get the term villain from, though? I don't know where we get the term villain. Villain used to be a designation of serfdom in the early Middle Ages. But villains were... I can't remember why. I can't remember what happened. But for some reason, through some like sort of shift in like class composition, they were basically removed from their lands and they became outlaws. And so that's how we get the term villain. It basically means like an outlaw, basically someone who has no obligations. They have no rights, but they also have no obligations, baby. So a desperado in Espanol. A desperado. <laughs> but that also brings up an interesting question. The phrase that's entered, entered the cultural lexicon, chilling like a villain, kind of a misnomer <laughs> there, isn't it? Seems like that would be the opposite of a chill life. It would not, yeah. Eh, maybe the well, no obligations part would be chill, but the constant you know, running from authorities would probably not be chill. That's the double bind of feudal life, my friend. It's like you you have some rights as a serf, 
you also have a lot of obligations, unfortunately. Yeah, yeah. It's not fun. No. But if you're a villain. Anyways. If you wonder why I'm writhing in pain over here, this is everybody was saying the Christina Heatherton episode was your flu game. Mm-hmm. I got flu game, too. I dislocated my shoulder, and I'm in an immense amount of pain. What happened? <laughs> I have no idea. Just I think maybe I slept on it in such Sorry. a way. I'm sorry, dude. No, I just didn't want you to think I had the palsy over here. And just, I already think. <laughs> I was like Mick Jagger. <laughs> you know. mm. You're doing great. Um. Okay, where was I? Where was that? What was I explaining? Oh, the fur trade. The fur trade. Europe at the time had it's a short... It's funny to say when you just say it fur trade. It is funny it's to say. It, for, it, but you don't really know why. <laughs> <laughs> it could mean anything. I think it was sexual. I think it was some kind of joke. It's gotta about, be. Like, you know, Bush or something like that. Right. But it was the funniest Beaver way of pelts. Ever. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's what they were going for. It was just... They weren't yeah. concerned about a middle century uh, fur shortage. They were being dirty. <laughs> yeah, we put that one to bed. Uh-huh. Mystery solved. 30-year mystery solved. Yep. Uh... Oh, wait, okay. So, there's a fur shortage in Europe. Oh, okay. So, the, like, the factory system in England, this is, like, you know, industrialism is getting started, and, like, leather making is a industry that is taking off in England at the time, but there's a shortage of, uh, what is it? I was going to say husbands because of husbandry. But as one that practices husbandry, a husband is <laughs> a husband, right? Good question. Uh, well, they had to source these first husbandry, as in like a murder of crows. Mm-hmm. Now, what do you call that? Wait, what? Hey, I always hear in the phrase "animal husbandry." That's that's animal husbandry is like domestication of animals. What that. are those groups? You know, that you know, like an alliance of dolphins, uh, venery groups. Uh huh. Yeah. Venery? Yeah. So, like, a group of husbands is a Kiwanis Club? A podcast. <laughs> <laughs> a Freemasons group? <laughs> yeah, or yeah. Odd the, Fellows? I'll tell you what a group of husbands is. The damn Kiwanis Club. <laughs> <laughs> uh... So okay, the way that the the way that this the Southern Appalachian region gets articulated into the world system is through furs, specifically deer skins. And what happened was the British came in and they basically turned all of the Cherokee society into like a sort of almost sort of like a factory system, like an export colony. They, they first of all, they completely destroyed its political and civic and economic structures. Like previous to this, they had like almost a kind of like bicameral political system. It was like democratic but they had like a red organization and a white organization and these two organizations like handled like diplomacy and war decisions and uh peacetime uh redistribution of goods and lands and all this other stuff but uh britain came in and they basically said uh no you have to appoint one person as your chief Listen, don't you scum know you have to have a viceroy? That's what they did, basically. Yeah. 
And then, and then, don't you tossers know that you you need a viceroy? And then, and then they basically made them dependent on British goods. So they like gradually wore down their ability to like have social reproduction. Basically, they made them entirely dependent on markets. Uh, I'm ex- simplifying extremely here. But, what a grim fate to have to like fucking uh, live oh, off. Uh, what what's in a full English? Fucking baked beans and untoasted toast and know, a man. sliver of tomato. It's so bad. It's like extraordinarily depressing. But <clears throat> as soon as this process is complete, so like at the time, there's like three metropoles of like Cherokee society. One of them's in like northern Georgia, one's in East Tennessee, and I think one is in Western North Carolina. And then like as they gradually sort of like you know, deracinate, just completely destroy this society. A bunch of like Tidewater elites, one of whom is George Washington and like Wilma Dunaway, you can tell she has an extreme distaste towards George Washington and Thomas Jefferson. But they're the people who buy up all this land. So you've got people like George Washington hiring people like Daniel Boone and Uriah Brown to like go into like East Kentucky, East Tennessee or whatever, survey the lands and then basically set up tenants on those lands to develop them and keep watch over them to make sure that squatters don't get on it. And so like over the course of like the 19th, 18th and 19th century, you basically get the development of like a semi-proletariat here. So it's like you've got agrarian capitalism You've got these large absentee landowners like George Washington and stuff. They own large portions of land, but they basically turn it into a kind of like factory system where you've either got tenants or sharecroppers or uh, like they call them like cottage tenants. Um, And then you've got a bunch of like non uh, landless workers who are wage workers, but they're like out of work five or six months out of the year. Um Basically, what I'm trying, what I'm saying here, is we got a situation where like no one owns the land. The only people who own the land, so like it wasn't a situation where you had a bunch of like poor settler colonialists coming in, and you have basically like tenant farming, I guess. Or yes, you had sharecropping, sharecropping and tenant farming, yeah. which is kind of feudal in a way. Yeah. Like there are there are definitely like feudal aspects of it. You're not a serf in the sense that you can leave. Like, serfs were tied to the land. Like, they couldn't leave. But you are... It is futile in the sense that, like, you're working the land for someone else and they get part of the crop, part of the production. So, like, part of your... You are abstracted from your labor in a way. Right, right. You get... You do all of the work and get a part of the thing. Yeah, a part of it. But most... But even that was a small portion most people were like semi-proletariat wage earners who just yeah. like were drifters who came through the region and just needed work it wasn't like out west where like the homestead act basically sent basically squatters into the west and like allowed them to just sit down and like you build your house with like cow chip like manure or yeah. whatever it's like La Conquistadela West Day baby how the west right. was won cow shit houses <laughs> It wasn't like that here. Here it was like a bunch of elites bought up all the land 
and then parceled it out and then there was also a lot of slaves a lot of slavery uh not so much in east kentucky and west virginia although there certainly was but there was like in like western south carolina like it was a fuckload and uh, appalachian virginia but then there was also uh squatters and a lot of those squatters were cherokee who refused to be removed because you know you had andrew jackson and indian removal in the 1830s they refused to leave so a lot of them stayed and became basically like semi-proletariat. Like they became like in this system of agrarian capitalism. Basically the point I'm making and the point that she's making is that there was never any, there was never any region that was like a region of like, you know, sort of romanticized self-sufficient farmers who like tilled the land themselves and like owned the land and passed it from generation to generation. And then the coal industry came in and destroyed all that. It's like, no, they were doing agrarian capitalism in like the most ruthless Fairly forms imaginable. Very early on. In fact, there were feudal forms of land ownership here before like the 1800s. So the people in this sort of weird nativist myth, <laughs> okay? What was there? Okay, so you have the Cherokee who this was their land. And they were basically, yeah, like you said, like, were, like, refused to leave, like, refused to, that, like, during the Indian Removal Act, you said? Yeah, like, Andrew Jackson, yes. So you had that class of people that kind of became a proletariat. So the people that are the subject of these myths now, like, the poor Scots-Irish frontiersmen that just found a log cabin out there and you know whatever whatever that the coal companies took all of this shit who were they the the descendants of in this story but the people that Washington and those type of people came like gave these like semi-feudal positions to well so you know the term primitive cap of accumulation right a lot of these people who bought up all this land, they did several things with it that, like, them buying up all this land uh, became the basis for, like, primitive accumulation of early capitalist United States. A lot of that money then went out to, like, factories and textiles and everything in, like, the northeast and middle states. Um, but gradually what they would do is they would, like, portion off parts of the land and then sell it for extraordinarily marked up prices and like there's even there's even passages where george washington is talking about this he's like talking about how like the land although he does not because he he owned land in like the Kanawha valley in west virginia what's now west virginia and he's talking about like how although he does not live on the land and does not use it in any way he fully intends to like survey it parcel it up and sell it for extraordinarily high amounts of money this is all virginia at this time right correct yeah 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 Yeah. Yeah. west virginia and even kentucky yeah up until when was kentucky created like late the 1790s yeah 1790 i forget now right so it's like that so that process by which people become landowners a lot of those 
people who are then landowners when the broad form deed rolls around. They're probably the descendants of those wealthier landowners throughout the 19th century. So there, there's, well, I mean, probably not the case universally, but there probably is to some degree some obscured class thing where, like, the beleaguered person cheated out of their land may have been uh, descended from like these sort of affluent Piedmont English, yeah. Whites. I mean, it's not universal. You're right because there were instances in which landless, like tenants and stuff, were able to work enough to be able to buy their own land. Like that's a thing that did happen. But for the most part, it started out as an extraordinarily like small group of people who owned the vast majority of the land. And over time, that like gets winnowed down and sold to other enterprising people, entrepreneurs who came who had enough money to buy it, but mostly their descendants. And so, you know, just because you're the descendant of one of the wealthy like uh, tidewater elites, doesn't necessarily mean you know how to read a broad form deed when a coal company comes around. There's, you know, what I mean. There's no reason necessarily that says that like you would be able to sort of shield yourself against like the maneuverings of the coal industry yeah it's a very complicated story but it's not like a straightforward like it is an interesting thing because that often gets obscured in this too is like in the whole appalachia thing it's like oh but these people owned land to have it stolen from them Uh uh-huh Quote, unquote. You know what I mean? Well, not quote, unquote. I mean, that did happen. They did fleece like illiterate landowners. Yeah. But to be able to own land in the first place, like, suggests some level of affluence. Maybe not like pure, like, university learned people, but maybe descended from people that had done well under some of these arrangements or whatever. Yeah, yeah. And it, it's, you know, it's like a hesitation. It's interesting. I, yeah, land ownership uh, is king. And you have to kind of... Well, I think it's... it's you. We can at least say this, like authoritatively. The vast majority of people at the turn of the 20th century, when they were doing a lot of that broad form deeds, coal companies were selling people's land and everything, the vast majority of people were landless like semi-proletariat people who are engaged in a economy of agrarian capitalism that was exporting some goods out. Uh, But I think a lot of those goods were, it depends on where you're at. Uh, This makes so much fucking sense to me now because the reason that it's easy for affluent liberals to get invested in Appalachia (laughs) is because... The myth. It's because, well, the myth, but also... It's because it's the same. It's literally the same thing as Gusano's in South Florida. Like, yeah. Formerly affluent landed people sort of became proletarianized vis-a-vis the you know twenty seventh of June revolution. Now it's not a one to one, obviously, but basically, yeah, there is sort of a feeling of having power by owning land, having it removed from you either by 
a coal company or in the case of that, a revolution, whatever it was, and then getting mad and wanted it back. So it kind of makes sense that like a lot of like affluent liberals can get behind sort of the Appalachian creation myth because it is mostly formerly landed white people being wronged. Exactly. And what it says about the current moment, because if it's, if it is as they say, then that means that the bad, the villains are the coal industry, which means that it's an example of capitalism gone wrong. I want to say, too, before we get too far away from this, I am in no way comparing Fidel Castro to the coal company. I just want to say that. I'm just saying that, you know, there was something no, no. that happened that you got to, you know. I think you're basically what you're saying is that you can be downwardly mobile. You can be at what you can be in one historical context, sort of at the top of the system, yeah. and then under a certain under Set a transformation, yes, you become downwardly mobile. You become downwardly mobile, yeah. But Which it's is important. rare when you're wealthy, but it right, does happen. Right. But it, it does happen, and especially in places like here where there are a lot of minerals and resources. And that's why those tidewater elites bought up all the, that land in the first place, because of all the resources. Copper, timber, coal. Cobalt. There was, cobalt. They even thought Carter, there was gold. Yeah, cobalt mines in Jenkins, Kentucky, before coal yeah. was ever even thought of there. Yeah. So, I, I mean, like, you know, I... I uh, I don't want to simplify it. I'm not trying to simplify her argument, and I'm not trying to, like, vulgarize it. But it, I think that, like, the basic point I'm trying to m make about, like, its current application is that it, it dispel, like, it, I don't know. I think it's dangerous to, like, have this, I, like, this creation myth in mind that there was, like, a... We're playing fast uh, and loose right now. Yeah, we are. We are. Well, we really from, are. in a lot of people's minds. <laughs> we are. Uh, but I, it's just like, I was reading that, like, John Gavinta book, the Power and Powerlessness book, and, like, how he's, like, in that book, like, why don't people rise up? Why don't they rise up? <laughs> rise up, you ignorant wretches. <laughs> and then it's like, I, like, you go to, like, the you know 50 pages in and he's like this area was like uh self-sufficient farmers and then the coal industry came in and it's like dude this is fucked up and this, <laughs> this, this, this is fucked up it's fucked up this fucked up i mean it's just it's bad history it's it's also you you aren't gonna change anything if you have a bad understanding of history and uh but I honestly, I thought the fascinating thing was that there were feudal land practices here before, like capitalism. Because you got to understand that, like, capitalism was not like, yes, like where and how capitalism started is a huge debate, right? It's like very fun to go down those rabbit holes. But America in the 17th century and 18th century wasn't entirely capitalist yet. And so you had feudal land practices here, like quit rent and shit like that. Like the S-cheat system or whatever. Like that's a feudal arrangement. And that's like really weird to think about. Obviously, like, the, you know, by the time you get to like the 19th century, they've fully sort of capitalized the whole thing. Land becomes commercialized. 
labor becomes commodified like the the hallmarks of capitalism like you see those things right. but like early on it's kind of interesting to think about it's just yeah. like I don't know we've on. been had yeah do you know what I've been thinking about lately what's that what is, what is very fascinating to me is that like capitalism did not start in no pro- mode of production has ever started just because some people sat down and said, let's do it that way. Like it is, it has been, like, there like, was a, not like a, there was not like a chamber of commerce meeting where they said, <laughs> okay, here's what we're going to do. Yeah. They didn't press a red button that says, all right, let's switch the mode of production. Yeah. Like not even, not even with like bourgeois revolutions in like England, France, the United States did that. It was instead like a long term, like secular process of, like sort of organic uh, appearances of like changes in the social relations over a long amount of time. So it kind of like does that make sense? So it rose organically. Does that make sense? Yeah, that's it was weird. Growing organic, non-GMO. It's non-GMO. That's weird to think about oh. because that means well, it makes you ask the question like, can you intentionally create a mode of production like communism? Or does it have to like grow sort of organically? organically? Have to, yeah. Yeah, I don't know. And what did Marx have to say on the subject? Or is this part of Chinese? Is Chinese democracy? It might be part didn't. of the Chinese democracy, man. <laughs> this is what's left unsaid. I think honestly, I think that's why he never really wanted to talk about communism. It's because I think he realized that the transformations in social relations throughout the 15th, 16th, 17th centuries are what gave rise to capitalism. It wasn't just like one group of people in one place. It was like several different places. And there was this like dialectical process where like the new mode of production gets crafted and created in the shell of the old one and then kind of like grows out of that. And so I kind of think that he probably realized like you can't do it intentionally, perhaps... But maybe you can. I don't know. Maybe then. That's fast and loose too. That's worth. It's worth pondering. Man, we went far afield. Let's go back to the beginning of this episode when it was funny. We were doing uh, popcorn humor. Let's do popcorn humor. I don't want to talk about serious stuff. I want to talk. Someone called us deeply unserious the other day. Who did? I don't know, but this is the thing in my mind. I'm like, do I want to be serious or not? Who called us deeply unserious? Well, I don't know. Some asshole. You want to go find some, him? Some future magistrate and nobleman. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I love that kind of snobbery. Yeah. Undisciplined Char- and deeply unserious. Motherfucker, I was raised by chicken fighters. Suck my dick. <laughs> Charlie bit me. Can we do that? Can we do Charlie Bit Me? You ever got remember? the Charlie Utter humor? You remember Charlie Bit Me? Or Charlie Utter, yeah, there's that too. You remember so that, vi- that viral Charlie video? It was that viral video of that kid who had a dentist thing. He was like, Charlie Bit Me. Oh. Charlie, why did you bite me? <laughs> you don't remember that? I don't think I do. I, I thought you were going for, can I pet that dog? That one. Yeah. First. Well, do you want to talk about Hassan Minaj? 
Uh, yeah, let's talk about, let's talk about, um, do you want to talk about, do you want to talk about Hassan Minaj or do you want to talk about Paul Krugman, why inflation is happening? Nah, Hassan Minaj. You don't want to talk about the United workers are overplaying their hand, risking our economy in the election? Mm, God, it's tempting. I think Hassan Minaj does just give you some dumbass morsels to chew on. (laughs) (laughs) Here's a dumbass morsel. Hey, hey. Listen up, hotshot. It's time for your fucking dumbass morsel. Do I want to do uh, the UAW is going to cost Biden re-election, and that and let me tell you why that's bad for democracy. Uh-huh. Or I made up a story about my daughter getting splashed <laughs> with anthrax to bolster my uh, Netflix special. Uh huh. Let's Tough. do this. Let's do the guy that wrote the auto workers. Okay. He's a counselor to the Treasury Secretary in the Obama administration. The United Auto Workers has taken to the picket lines in a particularly acrimonious strike, targeting for the Kirkman? first time. No, this is a guy named Stephen Ratner. I wonder okay. if he's related to Brett Ratner, the Hollywood uh, rapist. Is Brett Ratner? Alleg- uh, allegedly. I thought that was the guy who used to be married. To, was it? I thought he was, used to be married to Serena Williams. Oh, Brian Singer. You're getting Brett Ratner and Brian Singer mixed up. No, no, no. Brett Ratner also did bad things. He did me two things. Oh, okay, okay, okay. I I just didn't want to... I didn't want to besmirch somebody unnecessarily, but if he... (laughs) Trust me, dude. I know... I know my Me Too lore. Okay, Okay, you're the Hollywood reporter. I got it. I'm the Hollywood reporter. I know. Yeah. Popular opinion. That's right. Popular opinion. Terrence Hollywood Ray. That's mine. <laughs> <laughs> Popular opinion appears to lie firmly on the union side. And I'm all for the auto workers getting paid more. They have legitimate concerns. But this increasingly militant UAW is overplaying its hand with an overly lengthy and overly ambitious list of demands. I don't think there's any way the automakers will be able to meet these conditions. And I worry about the implications for our economy and for President Biden. The stakes are high. A prolonged strike, which could lead to far more widespread shutdowns of auto facilities, could jeopardize the economic recovery. (laughs) Our nearly $800 billion auto industry accounts for 3% of economic output, with a particular concentration in the Midwest, where states like Michigan are critical to President Biden's re-election. Okay, Okay, let me just say something right off the top. He's already (laughs) starting from the assumption that we give one fuck about President Biden's, uh, you know, aspirations and goals. Uh huh. Also, anything that you raise in this scenario could easily just be fixed by the auto industries, by the by the bosses just taking a little less <laughs> the demands, making yeah. less money. Yeah. It's like, why do the auto workers have to be the ones to sacrifice for Biden's economy? Now, it, yeah, why do we why do we talk about in those terms? Why, like, with the rider strike, why did, are we not just pointing out that like uh, Reed Hastings could just stand to you know make about forty million dollars less to meet these demands or whatever it is? You know what I mean? Right. Like, but instead, it's it's always no. The workers are jeopardizing this, and it's never like eight fucking assholes are jeopardizing everybody's. <laughs> livelihood it is a fascinating thing because basically what it's doing because just this sentence uh nearly eight 
hundred billion dollar uh, auto industry accounts for three percent of economic output, with a particular concentration in the Midwest, where states like Michigan are critical to President Biden's reelection. <laughs> what it's doing is it's pitting workers against the sacred, hallowed norms of democracy. That is, you know what it's saying? It's saying that uh, when the workers strike, democracy dies in the dark. Yeah. Like, did you see that? The wor- you see- UAW gave us Trump is what it's going to be if Biden loses re-election or whatever. It 100% will. Uh, did you see Amy McGrath is back? I saw. I, yeah, I saw a deleted tweet. Somebody said she's back, but it said this post has since been deleted. Yeah, um... She said, tonight I announced my mission for 2024. I'm teaming up with an unprecedented group of leaders in the national security community to launch a new project. (laughs) Wow. A new project project called Operation Saving Democracy, and our mission is singular. Stop Trumpism at the ballot box. And, like, the commercial has a bunch of, like, uh, war criminals basically saying that, like, I've stayed out of politics my whole life, but this is the biggest threat to democracy I've ever seen. They had Slobodan Milosevic saying that. (laughs) Slobodan Milosevic just saying, listen, I've done my fair share of crimes, but I've never seen anything like this. (laughs) We really are going to have a military coup to, like, put down those striking workers and to put down the Trump, like, MAGA morons. That's how this is all shaping up. It makes total sense. It's the same shit that said that, like, oh, Bernie voters are just MAGA voters. It's it's all shaping up to be the same thing, like, when this inevitably fucks Biden up, when he croaks in October 2024. <laughs> when be when like, Terrence's October surprise <laughs> prediction comes to pass. They're, they're going to say the stress was too much. I hope the, the second half of your life you become like a... Like a... Um, like a noted psychic. Yeah, like you just go, you just go all over the TV news circuit, making like bold projections, and like one out of twenty come true, and like everybody's like, "This man is the Oracle of Hobbes." Well, that's that's what you, that's what I've learned about prophecies. You never want to be right. Like the minute you're right about a prophecy, you slot, you start sliding into irrelevance and decadence. Well, it sets you the know? bar too high. It's like your first album being your best album. You know exactly, exactly. Uh. Uh, for much of American economic history, workers' incomes tracked closely. Blah blah blah. Uh, the UAW. I can so I can understand why auto workers want and deserve a big raise. The problem is that in their zeal, they are asking for too much. In addition to pay raises of thirty six percent over four years, the list includes a thirty two hour work week with forty hours of pay, a new version of the pre recession jobs bank, which continued to pay laid off workers most of their usual wages and a return to defined, defined benefit pensions. Company paid benefits. I want to say something retirees. too, though. Like, this is also, like, the, the, autom- like the auto companies aren't coming to the table either. You right. You know what I mean? Like, they're saying, like, oh, they have all these insane demands. Well, of course, in a negotiation, you're going to start way higher so you can right. have some room. You know what I mean? Like, quit... You can't paint people as like unreasonable because yeah, they're just trying to start a negotiation smartly. Yeah, and then he basically says that they're short-sighted because the auto industries are just going to relocate their production to Mexico or the South. 
Uh, <laughs> That's like, listen, we're either going to Puebla or getting some twelve-year-olds <laughs> to build these Nissan Versas, okay? And in fucking Jasper, Alabama. <laughs> Yes, profits at the Detroit 3 are at record levels, $37 billion last year. But the auto industry usually operates at thin margins, and even though labor costs are a relatively small fraction of the company's overall expenses, these profits can evaporate quickly. Gee, like, I wonder where they go. Yeah, these profits can evaporate quickly. <laughs> yeah, and right into the, yeah, the CEO's pockets. Yeah. I really and truly hope that the people that are responsible for being our country's watchdog and keeping an eye on things are truly not this goddamn stupid. <laughs> yeah, no, it's important to keep in mind this guy worked in the Obama administration. Oh, okay. okay. <laughs> it, well, I mean, it's astonishing. It's astonishing that, like, it's exactly like we were talking about on the phone before we recorded Every time that there is a Republican in administration in the White House, all these people turn into fucking like all these people like might as well be fucking like linen. Like you know what I mean? Like let's fucking we have to take back democracy by any means necessary. And then as soon as like a Democrat gets in the White House, they're just like uh uh, then they switch to like the sort of rad lib position, yeah. where it's like <clears throat> you can be. Well, they as keep radical. talking all radical, but it but it instead of like uh, yeah, storming the Bastille, it's like we're gonna get them in November, right where it hurts at the fucking ballot box. <laughs> uh huh. Um. But well, and my point of, well, my point about that is that like a lot of leftists or people in the liberal left like buy it hook, line, and sinker, and their reasoning, their rationale is like, oh well, we at least know people in these administrations now, and we can like work to like bend their ear, and it's like, and then they brother- start grandstand. If you got concerns about that approach, they start grandstanding about how like you're just unreasonable and like you're never going to like change anything with your like stubbornness about these things right and it's like just look at this op-ed these are the people you would potentially be lobbying the people who don't give a fuck about the workers they just care about getting reelected. and like i don't want to diminish i'm not trying to like diminish the threat to democracy trump represents yes if he wins probably not going to be good it's not going to be good no matter what Republican wins, it's not going to be good. No matter what liberal wins, right. like the whole fucking th- the whole goddamn thing is like coming apart at yeah. the seams. When things are this like febrile, you know what I'm saying? Like when th- when things are this tenuous, when the whole thing rests on like an 82 year old guy, somehow managing He's to die to- next month, no, <laughs> in a year from next month. <laughs> it's it's way you. it's way too tenuous. I'm just saying, like it's you built a system. You built a system that's like it. It's not built to last. It's not built for tough. Yeah. <laughs> this system, folks, not built for tough. <laughs> not built like a rock. <laughs> um, financial markets are acutely aware of the large-scale challenges facing the Detroit companies. General Motors stock prices are they essentially... Gonna, are they going to bring in Bob Seger to uh, break the strap? 
<laughs> Cross the picket line. I'd be so sad. I love Bob Seger. He's going to look at the UAW and say, you know what? You're not built for tough. Uh-huh. Uh, General Motors stock price has been essentially flat since the company went public 13 years ago, while the overall equity market has appreciated 276%. That's in part because of the competitive challenges the Detroit companies face, not only from traditional non-union players like Toyota or Honda, but also from new entrants into the industry like Tesla, which also has no unions, the proliferation of EVs uh, disproportionately produced by non-unionized companies will only heighten these pressures. Uh, this is why we need to be particularly careful about limiting the flexibility of the companies to manage efficiently. The companies are limited by contract, for example, in their ability to move workers from one factory line to another. Um, I don't think Bob Seger would break this track. That was, that was you don't think Bob, I'm sorry, Bob. You, th- you don't I break slander on Bob I wouldn't want to live in a world where Bob Seger was a scab. He might be, though, dude. We don't know. We don't know his political views. And, like, honestly, I'm kind of afraid to look it up. Yeah, all I really know about him is his night moves. He's still working. He's working on his night moves. I was, dude, I love working on my working night moves. Working on a night move. God, Some- such a fucking banger. Sometimes when I have to take a dump, like, after 6 p.m., I... I like sing that song, but it's like working on a night poop. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. <laughs> um, it doesn't say what his politically. Seeger has characterized himself as a centrist. I'm right down the middle. He remarked. <laughs> oh no, 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 Bob, no. Oh, he is going to break the strike, isn't he? He's going to try. He tackled anti-establishment themes in early songs such as 2 plus 2 equals question mark and UMC upper middle class. Uh, and then the checks started counting. <laughs> who sings that song? Life on authority, authority always wins. What is that song about? Like what? Like the message of that song is like, I'm constantly getting my ass kicked by the man. <laughs> Authority, authority always wins. You know what I'm talking about? Is that John Cougar? I fought the law and the law. No, no, it's the clash. I'm talking about John Cougar Mellencamp. You're talking about the Coug who was on Club Random with Bill Maher this week. (laughs) Debating about who can say the N-word and who can't. He was. That that was a meeting of the month. answers. Uh Uh-huh. Um. The UAW and its allies argue with considerable justification that the gap between workers' pay and that of senior execs has widened to appalling levels. That, however, has much to do with exploding top-level compensation, a phenomenon that has occurred, of course, across virtually all corporate America. What? Okay. From nine from $975,000 in 1978, roughly 60 times the audio industry's average pay at the time, the auto, compensation... Auto. I keep saying the audio industry. Do I say audio? Yeah, I think so. I think you said it. <laughs> the compensation wow. package of the CEO of G- General Motors rose to $29 million last year, more than 400 times the average auto worker's annual pay. Why are we having this argument then? It's pretty fucking obvious. Unions have an important role to play in redressing imbalances between owners and workers. That said, we need to be careful about killing the goose that lays the golden egg. Suck my fucking dick. Suck dude. my fucking cock. <laughs> Listen, have you never have you never fucking heard Jack and the Beanstalk? 
The worker <laughs> steals the golden goose, and when the giant comes after it, guess what we do? We kill the fucking giant. <laughs> that's what. That's how it goes. That's the story of history, motherfucker. <laughs> also, I love the concept, as you pointed out earlier, of starting a negotiation from the place of like, oh, I, I, I I'm just here to ask for a little more more, more money, but I don't want to kill the goose that laid the golden. I don't want to kill the goose. I, I want about uh, a nickel on the hour. That sounds. You're like who starts? Yeah, you're in a good position if you have a fucking union leader that's not too conciliatory to these fucking companies. Right. Yeah. Okay. I also like that Sean Fain. It kind of sounds like you're saying Sean Fain. I know. I thought that too. The first time I heard people saying his name, I was like, "That's yeah, that goes hard, dog." Damn. Damn. All right, Working bro. on the night poops. <laughs> Eating prunes during the working day. I said we're working on the night poops. <laughs> oh, the summertime. Cheat me out of two hours of sleep because I got to poop at 4 a.m. <laughs> oh, man. Oh, man. Okay. Let's call it. Let's, it's Mountain Heritage. I'm gonna go right. <laughs> You're gonna go tell everybody about this new history you've been reading. <laughs> Listen, everything you know about yourself is a lie. Yeah. Oh, is that writing fur trades on the wall? <laughs> Everywhere. <laughs> oh man. Okay. Um, go to the Patreon. We got an episode on uh, Sunday. With our friend Christina Heatherton talking about the about global radicalism in the era of the Mexican Revolution, please go check that out. I think it's a good episode. Um, that's from this past Sunday. Uh, Five dollars. That's all you got to pay, and then you get like two hundred something other episodes. What a deal! Hey, what a deal! Help out a landless artisan like. Help out some a couple of landless artisans with Lump and Pearl Rising yeah. in their charts. Yeah. Uh, you know, I'd challenge you if you've been given $5 a month. Say, you know, these boys are all right. We'll give, them a, we'll give them an hourly wage. And yeah. Bump that up to seven and a quarter or, you know, on up the chain, whatever. How many hours are in a week? We'll see. There's 24 hours in a day. So 24 times 7. So 168 hours in a week. Uh, how would you determine... If you gave us $5 a month, how would that work out per hour? How Dang. do you do that math? If there's six, 168 hours in a week, how do you do... 168 times 4.3. There's 722.4 hours in a month. In a 30-day month. A little more in a 31-day month. A little less than a 24-day month, obviously. Right. Do you divide, you divide by that five? by five? Wait a second. I messed that up. No, this is not working right. Do you divide it by like 0. 0.5? How do you do this? <laughs> I think it's 0. 0. 0.5. Yeah. Basically, I think it comes out to like your paying is like five cents an hour. Divide right? Divide by carry the two. Oh, God. Oh, man. I'm bad. <laughs> Yeah, I keep coming back to you would need to pay us $1,444.80. That's, listen, folks, that's not what we're asking for. 
Uh, well, I'm just saying, like, perspective-wise, if you think about it as if you give us $5 a month, that's like giving us a, a penny every hour, right? <laughs> yeah, I think something like that. And that's, that is not much. If you knew me in life, real life, wouldn't you want to give me a penny every hour? Huh? Five. I mean, it kind of makes sense because there's seven, there's like 700 hours in a month. And so a penny every hour is like $7 a month, right? Yeah. So, so therefore, ergo, it's a little less than a penny every hour. Send us some money so we can take uh, math on that seven at the community college. This works. Basically... I'm trying to like break it down into Spotify numbers. If you pay for Spotify, you you get more out of your buck by giving us five dollars a month. Oh, that's right. How's that sound? How's that sound? Right. Thirty divided by five. Wait a second. Thirty. I think you do seven hundred something divided by point. Brother. Wait a second. Math sucks ass. Yeah, I can't do this. I refuse to do this. I'm a social scientist, bitch. Yeah, that's. I prefer the social sciences. I prefer the. I prefer the soft sciences. Always have. That's right. I th- I think in my mind I've worked it out to a little. It's a little less than a penny every hour if you give us five dollars a month. So like you're giving me a little less than a penny every hour. <laughs> That's hardly any. Showed up at doorstep saying, "I need my pennies." <laughs> I need my less than a penny. Take a penny, break it in half. That's what you're giving me every hour. Yeah, a little something for me, and then you give the other half of the penny back. Say a little something for you. That's exactly right. We're that doesn't sound like much. That doesn't sound like much money, does it? Exactly. So then go sign up for Patreon, five dollars a month. Yeah. Or more. The sky's the limit. That's not much. Yeah. This is great math. Great reason, rationale. Uh, all right. Thanks for listening this week, Also, friend. if you point out that motherfucker that said that I'm deeply unserious, mm-hmm. just send him my way. Or them. Whatever. Uh, I think they I meant it as a... Stern talking to. I think they meant it as a compliment. Oh. Oh. Retraction. I think... If I don't know. If you meant it as a slot, then you, I'll take Then we're going to kick your fucking ass. Yeah. If you meant it as a compliment, then... Thanks. I'll make you a ham sandwich. We'll, we, we'll engage your fur trade. Yeah. We'll take you to the movie theater. <laughs> yeah. We'll jack we'll go, you off. We'll go trade beaver pelts. <laughs> okay. Thanks for listening this week, everybody. We'll see you next time. Peace out.